14, starting in verse 25. And while you're turning there, I'm going to read you a uh, brief excerpt from a biography about a woman uh, who is named Joy Davidman, lived in the 1930s. She's not very well known. Um, she was somewhat well known in her day. She was a prolific author, writer. It says, uh, by her own admission, Joy Davidman had been searching for fulfillment for years. College and graduate school, writing and editing, and socializing with some of New York's most celebrated editors and authors, as well as political activism, were good in their place, but she was empty inside. With highest expectations, she entered into family life with her husband. While Bill Gresham wrote and sold novels, including one, Nightmare Alley, that became a motion picture starring Tyrone Power, Joy stayed at home, did some freelance writing, and cared for her little boys and the house and the garden. The Gresham marriage was in trouble from the outset. Bill had a serious drinking problem. Binges and hangovers cut into his writing just when the growing family required more time and money. But only wasted time, Bill only wasted time and earned little money. He embarked upon a series of extramarital affairs that once broke Joy's heart and drove her into fits of anger and despair. By the end of 1945, large cracks began to appear in her protective armor. Better educated and more intelligent than most people, well-published and highly respected for a person only 30 years old, Joy had seldom, if ever, seriously entertained weakness or failure. But Bill's long absences from home and apparent lack of concern for her and the boys left her devastated. One night, Bill called from Manhattan and announced he was having a nervous breakdown. Whether true or just another cover story for one of his escapades is beside the point. In brief, he was not coming home and could not promise when or if ever he would be back. Joy walked into the nursery where her baby slept. In her words, she was all alone with her fears and the quiet. She recalled later that for the first time, my pride was forced to admit that I was not, after all, the master of my fate. All my defenses, all the walls of arrogance and cocksureness and self-love behind which I had hid from God went down momentarily, and God came in. She also says, it is infinite, unique, there are no words. There are no comparisons. Those who have known God will understand me. There was a person with me in that room, directly present to my consciousness, a person so real that all my previous life was, by comparison, a mere shadow play. And I myself was more alive than I had ever been. It was like waking from sleep. So intense a life cannot be endured long by flesh and blood. We must ordinarily take our life watered down. 
diluted, as it were, by time and space and matter. My perception of God lasted perhaps half a minute. Joy concluded that inasmuch as God apparently exists, then there is nothing more important than learning who he is and what he requires of us. Now, she wasn't a believer at this time. But in her journal, she wrote down those words, who he is and what he requires of us. Now, what her story means for our time today, we'll discover in just a bit. But for now, remember that phrase at the very end. There's nothing more important than learning who he is and what he requires of us. Now, if you haven't yet turned to Luke chapter 14, turn there now, and we're going to start, like I said, in verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple." Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So what we're going to do is look at all these examples he uses and find out what it is they're pointing to. Because what's intriguing is that each example seems to point to one thing, or it'd be better to say each example points to the same truth. So the question is, what truth are all these examples leading to? Well, let's go ahead and look down at the first one. Uh, In verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, as is always the case with Jesus, he's being followed around. And this time, like a lot of other times, the crowds following him are pretty big. And it's interesting that while he's being followed around, he starts talking about this very thing. It's likely that he knows why some are following him. He knows their intent behind following him. And it says that he turns to them. Now, because he knows why they're following him, he decides to make them uncomfortable. If anyone comes to me and does not hate... And I think we have to ask, why would he do that? Why would he use words like that? Why would he make them 
I mean, I'd be pretty uncomfortable if someone said something like that to me. And why would Jesus do that? Well, so they will reconsider why it is they're actually following him. So the question I won't ask you is, are you following Jesus? The question I will ask is, what is your motive behind following him? Now, naturally, motives are deeply ingrained within us, and most of the time we don't know what they are. But fortunately, the same motives that we have are the same kind of motives that we see in the scriptures. And in this scripture, a motive that Jesus is getting at in all the examples we just read, family, your own life, etc., the motive that he's getting at are the motives of value systems. And right away, he starts with the value system of the family. Now, the hardest thing about families is how they draw us in. And, you know, you're probably thinking, isn't that what they're supposed to do? And yes, they are. Families that actually put each other first, love each other, serve one another. If they're functioning, they don't have to be functioning perfectly, but families that do those things, it's what God intended. It's important, right? But at the same time, I think most of you would agree with me that whatever is important by its nature tends to diminish other things. What's important in our lives often gradually edges out other aspects of our lives. Um, there was a comedy writer, well-known guy, I won't tell you his name so you won't think less of me, um, but he, uh, I'll just call him Frank, and he had a, a close relationship with another friend, we'll just call him Seth, and they'd been friends for a long time. They wrote sketches together. They spent a lot of time together. They had a really close relationship. Um, and as they were writing sketches for these different companies and doing things that they always did, one day um, his friend uh, Seth said to him, hey, I just met this girl. And he started talking about her, et cetera, et cetera. And he was like, that's cool. You know, I hope it works out. Eventually, uh, Frank discovers that this relationship is getting pretty serious. And then one day, um, Seth comes to him and says, hey, we're engaged. And he congratulates him, and, and they go on. He doesn't, you know, say much. Anyway, he starts working on this project for his friend, this, this writer. And he's putting a lot of time into it, and uh, he starts making this video of a montage of all their memories together, all their pictures together, things they used to do for fun, et cetera, et cetera. And he just makes this long montage, and he plays it for Frank and uh, all of his friends. And at the very end of the video, you see a picture of two of them smiling together. It says, Frank and Seth, rest in peace. Now, what was he saying? He was saying... I knew our friendship was over when they got engaged. Because whatever, and how often is that true for us? Whatever is important to us naturally diminishes other things that are important to us. 
And it's interesting that the first example Jesus uses is the family. He draws our attention to what is often most important to us, our families. I was thinking about my family, and, you know, all of this applies to me, and this will apply to other people as well, but um, if you consider your family, sometimes we're just, we're trying to do what's best, we're following our kids to practice, we're taking them to lessons, with bated breath, we're listening outside the door to make sure they're not fighting again, we're following them to practice again. We fall asleep, wake up, we're at practice, we're taking them to another lesson, we're spending time with them, we're investing ourselves in their relationships, in their potential pa- uh, talents, we want to make sure they do well at school, they're always on our mind, and we're running around and around and around and around, and it goes on and on and on, and all the while, amidst all of this, we're trying to make sure that our spouses are content, and their wants are taken care of, and their needs are taken care of, And whether we know it or not, Jesus becomes part of another value system. But what he makes clear is that he cannot be a part of someone else's value system. If he is simply a part of your life, then he says you can't follow him. And not only does he say you can't follow him, he says if I'm just a part of your value system, then you must be following something else. Your attention, your heart, your desires must be on something else. Because the reality is a part of a bigger value in our lives is merely a way to support that other value. It's a way to reach that other value. So that's why we have to, we can't ask the question, are you following Jesus? We have to ask the question, what is your motive behind coming to him? See, that crowd on that day, there were many people following Jesus. But all of them were following him for different reasons, sometimes very different reasons. And as I thought about this, uh, this is kind of what I came to. When you think about values, Jesus' aim is to take everything you value and totally turn it on its head. He wants to completely reorient your entire life. He wants to completely reorient your thinking. He wants to reorient what you care about. Now, I talk about families. Um, Families aren't everything to some people. We have to acknowledge that. Some of us aren't close to our families for many, many different reasons. And that's why, look down at the verse again in 26. That's why he moves on from families, and he moves on from families to this phrase, yes, and even his own life, our way of life. If you think about your life, 
it is often helpful not to just think too introspectively, but to think about also how you live your life, which we would describe as your way of living. And our way of life is kind of just how we see the world, how we see ourselves in the world, how we see others in the world, or how we see our role in the world. And that's often very personal to us, okay? But Jesus comes here and he says, even those values I cannot be a part of. Instead, you must be a part of mine. Your values I cannot value, but my values you must value. So an easy way to measure your, we're talking about our way of life, right? An easy way to measure your own way of life is whatever you are passionate about. So for some, this will be preserving national heritage. For some, it'll be living to themselves, their freedoms, how they want to live their life. For some, it'll be fighting for women's rights. For some, it'll be ending world hunger. It's different for all of us. But Jesus comes in and he says, if anyone is to follow me, they must abandon their way of seeing the world. See, we can preserve a nation, but Jesus says, what I'm doing is building a kingdom that will never end. What did we say before? Make, what is he doing? Making your values his values. And what did he do to the people that were following them? He made them uncomfortable so as to what? What did we say? Reconsider why they're actually following him. Now, if you think about your way of life personally, what you've been doing for a long time, um, reconsidering it is a very, very hard thing to do. Because our way of life, it's, it's familiar, right? It's safe. We're used to it. But he says to follow him, you must leave it. It cannot be your priority anymore. To follow Jesus, you must walk away from your own way of life, how you see the world. And it's going to be Again, what did I say? This is a difficult passage. It's going to be difficult, no matter what it is, to leave your own way of life. It, you know, something that I have never, I've never done, but I've always really wanted to do, is go out to sea. Just go out on the open ocean. Just to hear the waves the calming effect, to be a place where I can't even see land anymore. That's something I've always wanted to do. I've never been able to. You know, they, people talk about having a call to the ocean. It's weird and mystical. I haven't had that experience. I'm not that odd. But I've always wanted to go out into the open sea. I think that would be an awesome experience. And sailors, when uh, they talk about going out to sea, a lot of them say, the first time you go out and you can't see land anymore, that's the memory that you recall more than any others. It's an incredible experience. And there's actually a, a saying 
that sailors have, and it's you will never cross the ocean until you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. And many of us are stuck in our own way of living our lives. We're stuck in our own way of seeing the world and our own priorities. And Jesus says, mine are radical and they're different. And to follow me, you have to walk away from those things. You have to abandon those desires. That's what being a disciple of me actually means. And here's the thing. Leaving what you're used to is not only hard, it's also costly. And now this makes sense what he means when he continues in verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? See, we know whatever is at the top. Think about yourself personally for a second. You know whatever is at the top of your value system when it's at stake, when you have to think about leaving it. And I think perhaps this is why following Jesus is so costly, because we have to, to follow him, give up whatever is at the top of our own personal value system. See, here's what it is. Our ends become his means. It will cost you to place your family beneath him. It will cost you to place your way of life, your values, beneath his. It will cost you to honestly say before him, all of my possessions are yours. Everything I have belongs to you. And that also has to be what he means when he starts talking in verse 33. Look at it with me. So therefore... Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has. Think about that. Any one of you that does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. To follow him, you must not only renounce how you see the world, you must renounce your way of life. You must renounce what is at the top of your value system, whatever's most important to your heart. Now, I need to mention this really quickly. To follow him, you also have to know the difference between what he's saying here, which is a difference between intent and methodology. Okay? Is he literally saying, here's the method, hate your children? Well, he's also the same person who says, love your enemies, so that doesn't make sense. Is he literally saying, sell all your possessions? Or what about when he told men who couldn't stop looking at women in Matthew 5 that they should cut out their eyes? Was he literally prescribing that? I guess if we know he was, we would quickly know who has a problem looking at women, wouldn't we? But 
That's not the little literal prescription here. I found a, a guy who is writing on this very thing, um, and he says, It would be absurd to insist on a literal interpretation of the phrase, as if no man were a disciple of Christ, till he threw into the sea all that he possessed, divorced his wife, and bade farewell to his children. Now listen to this. Thus, true self-denial, which the Lord demands from his followers, does not consist so much in outward conduct as in the desires. And listen very carefully to this phrase. Without allowing the objects which he directs by his hand to hold a place in his heart. Without allowing the objects that he directs by his hands to hold a place in his heart. So what he's saying here is it's less about outward methodology and more about the intent that Jesus wants you to focus on. And what is this intent? It is not outward practice, but it is looking, and this is, again, I told you this is a difficult passage, it is looking inside of yourself and asking, what am I really following? In my life, what am I really following? Because here's the thing, giving up internally inside of you what's most important, that's what's most costly. See, does this start to make sense now? That's why Jesus starts with the family that's why he starts with your children. That's why he starts with your own way of life. Giving up those things for Jesus is unbearable. It is hard to forsake your own way of thinking and living. And that's why he calls it costly. And he talks about a king going out to war. Have you ever considered following Jesus like that before? Well, I want you to consider it today because he says, if you don't, his literal words are, you cannot be my disciple. Okay? For me, this really gives me insight into the rich guy Jesus runs into in Mark 10. Remember him? The rich young guy? He comes to Jesus and he says, oh, just tell me, Lord, what am I supposed to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus has a conversation with him. And then he says, there's one thing that you lack. Sell all your possessions. Give everything that you have to the poor, and then you'll have eternal life. Now, that's in the Bible. Now, is that prescriptive again for all people? Is Jesus telling all people they must give up all of their possessions to have eternal life with him? No. So what does it mean? What did I say earlier? Jesus approaches every single one of us here, and he knows what is at the top of your value system. And he knew for this rich guy that wealth would be the hardest thing for him to give up, and it was keeping him from the cost of following Jesus. So that's why he told him, you must give that up if you are to follow me. Now, it's different for all of us, but Jesus knows whatever is most important to you. And he's asking you, if you want to follow me, really 
Following me means giving up whatever is closest to your heart, whatever it is. I find myself doing this all the time. I find myself saying, God, I will be your disciple if I can just have this. God, I'm fine with the idea of you being my Lord as long as this thing I, I, I kind of have in my possession. And Jesus says, that's not possible. You, that following me doesn't, doesn't really work like that. As I was uh, reading through this passage, um, this is what kind of struck me as really the entire point of what he's saying. And what this whole passage comes down to is, is this. Jesus will not be a mean to any other end. To follow Jesus, he must be your only end. So let's go back to uh, Joy Davidman. Remember, we started with her at the beginning. Now, she was following all kinds of things. Again, we said she was very gifted. She was writing. She was being published. We also said she was empty, and so she desperately wanted some kind of fulfillment from a family. So she married this guy, and what happened? Cheated on her, abused her, left her. She was forced to uh, raise her kids by herself. She was forced to provide income for their family while he was out having affairs. Um, She took a trip when her health started to decline, and while she was away, he had another affair with one of her cousins, and then he divorced her. Everything she wanted and was searching after, God just totally ripped from her life. So anyway, time went on. Her health got worse and worse. She was diagnosed with cancer. Um, And just to help her rest, her parents sent her on a trip to uh, England for a few weeks. And she had been corresponding uh, with another writer who was well-known about his books. His name was C.S. Lewis. And when she was in England, she met him. They quickly fell in love and got married. But only four years in, the cancer came back again and she died. Now remember, what did she say at the very beginning of our message today? She said, there's nothing more important than learning what God requires. Now, she learned through her entire life that Jesus must be not a mean, but her end. Jesus himself must be her end. Now, C.S. Lewis would have to face this very same thing. A lot of people don't know that after uh, she died, he went into a deep and long depression. See, uh, if you don't know very much about C.S. Lewis's life, he was a bachelor his entire life. He always lived by himself. So then he meets this woman, and for the first time in his life, 
He has someone's hand that he can hold. He has someone that he can spend time with, talk to when he's lonely, someone he can love, and he's never had that before. And four years in, she dies, and she's completely gone. And he could barely, this is the guy who wrote the well-known philosophical piece on the problem of pain years earlier. And then later on, he would say, I had no idea what I was talking about when he was going through this kind of pain. Okay? So what did I say? C.S. Lewis would have to learn this very same lesson as as well. He wrote in his journal, he said, am I, for instance, just sliding back to God because I know that if there's any road to her, it runs through him? But then, of course, I know perfectly well that he can't be used as a road. If you're approaching him not as the goal, but as a road, not as the end, but as a means, you're not really approaching him at all. That's what was really wrong with all those popular pictures of happy reunions on the further shore. Not the simple-minded and very earthly images, but the fact that they make an end of what we can get only as a byproduct of the true end. Now today, if you're honest, you may, you may have no idea what you're following. But if it's not Jesus, he is saying to you right now, leave everything behind. And follow me. Leave the shore. Leave what you know. And follow me. Let's pray. Lord, to truly be your disciple, you ask us to give up our deepest desires. You ask us not to look to you as a mean to something else, but to look to you as our only end. Lord, if we are here today and we have not looked to you as that end, as the only goal, May we believe like joy. May we believe like C.S. Lewis. And follow you now, forsaking all else for yourself. In you lies true peace. Amen.